Hi everyone, I am Giselle Andrade. I am currently a product manager for eSolutions at Sonova. I am from Portugal, very much passionate about design sprints and design thinking. You're listening to the Dallas Design Sprints podcast. So let's get into the first topic of changing careers. Can you kind of uh, tell your story about that? I started originally, I started with psychology, child psychology, because I was always fascinated with learning disabilities and special teaching. And also adults with learning disabilities, I specialized in dyslexia. And then I started working a bit more in psychometricity. From then on, I was always very, very interested in computer-human interaction and in tech and how it could help develop the person's uh, learning abilities, how you could use it as a tool. And then it was very difficult to find a job in, in psychology. And I started thinking, okay, what are the other topics that I like and that I find interesting? And the topics that I found interesting were literally computer-human interaction and tech. Like I wanted to understand how it worked. Um, and I was always really interested in product design how you can make a product look beautiful and be functional. Yeah, at the beginning, I think it was a little bit the beginning of these mock courses, the massive online courses. It was still the beginning and I was really excited about, about it in the sense of look at all that I can learn online. Uh, unfortunately, a lot of the recruiters and the people I spoke to did not agree to that. And I think they always try to put you a bit in a box and saying, if your experience is in this, then you have to stay in this. If your experience is in X, Y, Z, why would you want to get out of it? You have to continue with that. So I have to admit it was a little bit frustrating, all of that, because you really had to study, 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 just try to learn and try to get people to let you experiment on that. Uh, and then I managed to switch to pharma. So I worked in pharma and then I started really getting interested in digital healthcare and biotech. And I worked as a contractor, as a temp through ADECO uh, at Google. And that's when my little bug for tech really boomed. And I started getting interested also in the basics of programming. And yeah, and basically a whole world opened up. What kind of drove you to make the change? Well, it was mainly, it was two things. First of all, I was always interested in different kinds of topics. So in any case, I always find it difficult to me to stick just to one topic. I like seeing how things relate to each other, how you can develop transferable skills that can go across different areas. And the second reason is I was finding it hard finding a job as a psychologist. So to be honest, I just had the need to reinvent myself and think of career alternatives. But I still wanted to be true to myself and still wanted to keep the things. I didn't want to just do a job because I had to. I didn't want to just change to a job because I just had to. I wanted to really think of alternatives that I really liked and that I thought were meaningful for me. Do you feel like you took two steps back to go one step forward? It depends. Like sometimes because I don't consider it really a step back. 
I mean, if you mean taking a step back to go a step forward in the sense that I had to learn a lot of new skills in that sense, yes. But I also had the opportunity to use a lot and to leverage a lot of what I already knew from my training as a psychologist and in learning disabilities. And uh, when, because in psychology, you also study a bit of the interaction of humans and computers and people and machines, this interaction. So I did have a chance to leverage a lot of that knowledge, but okay, I did have to take one step back in the sense that I had to learn a bit what design system is. I had to learn a bit, okay, what UX design really is. I wanted to learn a bit what basic programming is so I could better understand what the teams that I was working with meant because that's key to the completion of any project, communication, right? You have to understand what the other teams are trying to tell you. And you have to also find a way to drive your message across. I had to take a detour. I'm not sure if I would say a step back to two steps forward, but yeah, if what you mean by a step back is like kind of refilling myself with new skills to complete the ones I already have and then take the jump again, then yeah. How would you recommend to other people who are looking to do something similar to what you've done and change careers? What kind of advice could you give them? Go for it. Like really just don't overthink it. Don't overthink it. Don't let the recruiters or the people scare you to staying in something that you're not happy with. I mean, we are lucky enough to be in a century where there are so many resources online that are not expensive that you can do to bump up your skills, to reskill yourself. And also don't let anybody tell you that just because you don't come from a certain area that you don't have skills that you can use in the new area that you want to go. I mean, you know what you know, you can always leverage what you learned before. There's always something that you're gonna be able to use. One thing that I hear a lot is like, yeah, but you know, I have children, I have little time. That's also okay. I mean, we are lucky enough to have so many resources online that you can just study and learn new skills at your own pace and organize yourself and just put it, it is possible. You, you can do it. So my advice would be definitely like, go for it and don't let anyone tell you that you can't use your skills, that you have to start from zero again, because you don't, whatever you want to do, somebody else already did, already tried it. And there's lots of information out there. There's lots of support out there. That was going to be my next question. Would you recommend speaking to people that have gone down that path so you can get some insights from them? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Clarity comes from engagement, right? You may think that you're very interested in an area because that's your perception of it. But then when you get hands down to it, hands on to it, you find out that you don't really like it so much. Once you really get deep into it, you find out that you didn't like it so much or you're not too sure. And then you realize, wow, this really is what I wanted. This was the best decision ever. So clarity comes from engagement. So I absolutely recommend that you speak to people from the area and that you find a way to try it out yourself. And how did you cope with disappointment when you had setbacks in kind of making the change? I just kept learning. 
I mean, I'm a, I'm a little learning bug. I'm, I'm addicted to reading and to learning. And when I was disappointed, I always tried to understand why I was disappointed. So I would go to read even more and talk to people even more like, okay, but I'm not liking this side of the task. Why is it? And why is this? And try to understand why was I disappointed and what exactly was disappointing me and how did it fit into the big picture? Because sometimes you can be disappointed because you see this, oh, this profession is going to be so cool. But even in your dream job, there's always things that you don't like. But you also need to be ready for a little bit for that frustration. You also sometimes you think you're disappointed, you're frustrated because you wanted to learn a little bit faster and then you don't. Personally, my way to cope with disappointment was really to just talk to the people that are in the area to share the frustrations and to just keep learning more and more about it to feel more confident. Because that, that yes, was something I definitely always struggled a bit, was to build the confidence that changing the, the career was a good thing and build the confidence, yeah, I can do this now. I think that's what took me a little bit of a longer time. You spoke at length before about happiness and how that's a big factor in terms of your engagement with people and, and problems. How does yeah. happiness kind of factor into this journey you've had with changing careers and what's your overall mantra when it comes to that? That's a good question. My mantra is like that book, Feel the Fear and Do It Anyway. It's a book I definitely recommend because at the end of the day, it's what keeps you going. That You feel the fear, but you do it anyway. And the thing is, ultimately, happiness is when you're, it's something very personal, right? But for me, happiness is when I really get to be myself. And for me to be able to be myself, I have to do things that I'm genuinely interested in. I'm really enjoying it. And because I really feel that there's a purpose to it, that I see, oh, this is going to be something that's going to be used, that's going to be shown, that's it's going to have an impact and the definition of impact changes from people to people, of course. But for me, my, my happiness really was just to be able to go to work and really wanting to go and feeling that, yeah, I'm going to go, I'm going to meet my colleagues. It's an environment where I feel that I can express myself. I feel happy when I feel strong enough to have this mantra of feel the fear and do it anyway. Because some days you're, you're definitely like, oh, this is going to be a, a hard task. I haven't done this before. Sometimes you're more disappointed. Sometimes everything goes well, but it's always up and down, right? Did you adopt this philosophy from someone else or through your experiences? And have you taught this to other people? I try to. I try to pass this idea because indeed I did learn it from, from other people. I was lucky enough to have two really, really special managers that were the example of what we call leaders as opposed to managers. So I was lucky enough to have two managers that were true leaders that really allowed me to experiment things and to really discover what my strengths were. And they allowed me to really develop what they believed were my strengths and what I believed were my strengths. And they always really made me feel part of a team and they were always very open when they were going through frustrations and they always kept a very strong line of dialogue when something was going on. I would say I adopted this philosophy from them and from the example that they gave. I tried to, I tried to share that with other people. 
when I see them getting frustrated at work and I see them getting frustrated learning something new, I always try to, you know, to tell them like, it's okay. It doesn't have to be perfect. Just do it. Because one of the things that I see very often is exactly that, is that people are very perfectionist. They don't feel ready to show things because they feel that it has to be perfect. And no, done is better than perfect done advancing something it's really progression over perfection you just have to keep trying it out and i think that is what makes people once people start freeing themselves from this notion of it has to be absolutely perfect you do see them smile more you do see them become more comfortable and more daring more excited about coming to work because they feel more comfortable with making errors and just experimenting how does a safe environment, good for a space to freely fail and succeed, how important do you think that is in this context? It's everything. It, it's not important. It's everything. It's absolutely everything. It's crucial. It's absolutely crucial. If people don't feel comfortable to share their ideas without being judged, if people don't feel comfortable to, hey, I tried this out, but it didn't work because they fear that they will be shamed in some, in some way, they'll be considered less qualified professionals, then you're killing the whole spirit that brings innovation, collaboration, new ideas. I mean, it's the foundation of team spirit, right? If you kill that, how are you supposed to feel comfortable working with other people and being happy working with other people if you don't feel that you can bring what you are and what you think and what you feel, if you don't think that you can collaborate, if you're made to feel that you always need to think two, three, five times before you give an idea, you lose a lot from your colleagues because you're killing what, their voice. One of the strengths that you have shown a lot of is storytelling. How do you think storytelling influences how you communicate your point of view in that context? For me, storytelling is how you create engagement. It's one of the best ways to present your ideas and make people relate to it. And it's definitely a more engaging way of communication. So when I present a new idea, I try really to present it as a story to see how people feel about it, if it raises empathy, how they react to it. I try to do that also with the teams that I work with because I think it helps focus on the product that you want to develop. It helps making it more consumer-centric. If you really try to imagine the story, and if you really try to think, okay, what would the flow of this be? You're kind of putting yourself in the place of the, of the consumer and seeing how they would feel and really trying to walk a mile in their shoes. Now, on the other hand, I think it's also a very good way to get buy-in from other departments to your projects because it's a way to show why your product is important, why your idea could work. Like to really tell a story to allow people to visualize it. Do you have a list of like top three or top five tips for people that don't know how to story tell, but would get them kind of acclimated to the concept or at least the practice of it? Yeah, play. Play. Games are a great way to get into storytelling. And you have a lot of really easy, small games that you can do. You have the story dice which basically is dice that you roll and each of the face of the dices has an image. And then you need to build a story with those images. 
fable cards. They give you part of the story and you fill in the blanks. So that's a fun way to get acclimated to it. And of course, one of the most famous games always used to, to play with storytelling is the famous collective writing that you're in a group, three or four people, and each person writes a story and the other person has to continue the story based on the previous sentence. So that's definitely one tip for people to play with it and watch movies. Movies are great to understanding the structure of storytelling. My absolute, absolute, absolute all-time favorite is Cinema Paradiso and Amélie Poulain. And I'm also a big fan of uh, Tim Burton and Tarantino, but I would say that's way more advanced. One thing that really helps get accustomed to storytelling is that look at a movie, like see a movie and try to f- see the structure of it. Try to see the structure, the flow of it. Go to a movie that you know by heart, that you've seen a thousand times and really think of the structure. What happens? What, how is the story told? Who is the hero? Who is the, the villain? Where is the conflict? What happens? And then try to put it on your own idea, on your own product, how you could explain it. I know that some people are also more visual. So that's also an, an, another exercise that they can do. Alfred Hitchcock is the king of storytelling. Uh, when it comes to cinema, he's the king of suspense. He's amazing. Rear Window is one of the best. Mm. Absolutely. For me personally, I, I really liked reading. Since a child, I, I always liked reading. And I think that's what got me into storytelling. But I think sometimes what really helps is when you look at your product to not immediately think about data because we're going to need it, of course, but to just take a few seconds and really think of the W questions. What is happening? Why? To who? When? And if you can answer that, you're already, you're already building a story. It just starts to emerge on itself. And then it's really all about practicing, 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 and always remembering, okay, I should answer these questions. I, I need to have, when I create something, either a product or a service, it always needs to, to answer these questions. It needs to be an answer to what is happening, why does it happen, when does it happen, to who. And also the last question is, okay, you present your solution and then how does my solution change? What happens now that's new when I present my solution? What changes? So how does it become better? At least that's the mental scheme I try to follow and I try to create. And always, always try to go with mundane, relatable examples. Like keep the story, keep the story simple. A lot of the times that I see people try to create elaborate, complex storyboards to explain why the product is it. Keep it simple. Simple, mundane, relatable with everyday examples that everyone can quickly understand and relate to. When we were creating now this project, uh, Teenagers for Change, uh, that it was for the teenagers, we had our teenagers tell us their ideas and how they felt. So we explained to them the concept of what we wanted to do. And they built the campaign with us and they were telling us what they understood, what they didn't. So I think it's definitely a technique that, that, that works. Like, go back to the basics. Simplify. 
always. And I think that's the I think that's the most difficult thing to do in the storytelling part is exactly to get to that point of simplification. Because we always when we're very, very into a topic, we always have the the, the feeling that we want to add more and more details because we think if we don't do it, we won't understand. But at the end of the day, less is more. The more you simplify it, the better. You spoke of some initiatives that you're involved with, like Teenagers for Change. Uh, do you want to get yeah. into that a bit and also explain some other stuff you have coming up? Teenagers for Change was a, a project that uh, I did together uh, with a team. We were five people and we did it during the summer. And it was the first online uh, virtual camp design sprint for teenagers. Uh, because it's a topic that I'm definitely very, very, very interested in, is how we can apply design sprint and design thinking techniques to education. It's a topic I'm very passionate about because I think our teenagers really do need the opportunity to express themselves, discover their own potential, and express it. Not only because it's a way that it prepares them to the future of work, so to develop future skills, but also as people to explore themselves. It's a chance for them to figure out what they want, what they like, what they're interested in, what they're capable of, what makes them tick. Now what I will do together with another colleague in Brazil is that we are working on creating ongoing online design camp school for teenagers and teachers. So we want to be using the prototype that we created now during the GVDS5 that uh, also touched that topic. And what we want to do is, is create a platform where teenagers at any moment can get in a group of five and create their own challenge. And at the same time, have this separate layer where we will be teaching high school teachers, elementary school teachers, and even university teachers if they're also interested how they can use design sprint and design thinking methodologies to segment their curriculum. They have the set curriculum, and that's not going to change from one moment to another. And they have the constraint of time, and they have the constraint of the size of the class. And they still want to be creative, and they still want to try new ways to keep their classes engaging. Nonetheless, they still have all these constraints. We thought, it was like, okay, how can we help you use design sprint and design thinking methodologies to help you segment and work on your strict curricula in a more engaging and meaningful way. So we're going to be having these two sides to our platform. On one hand, the teenagers will be able to join and always have ongoing challenges that they build themselves. And on the other hand, we're going to also be engaging more teachers to learning these methodologies that they can bring into school. Do you think the global virtual design sprint should have challenges that have specific organizations or people that they benefit from the start. I'm asking you because you've been part of the event for so long that I really want to get your perspective on this. So the question is, should the GVDS have predefined challenges that benefit specific organizations or groups from the outset? I see a couple of advantages with that because it would be easier to get the attraction of and the sponsorship of associations that could make the GVDS projects a reality. And the GVDS would be a perfect way to showcase them. And if you predefine, well, maybe not the challenges, but just a couple of areas, then it would be easier to attract 
these kind of organizations to come and see and then develop partnerships to make it real. And I'm not necessarily suggesting that you go to an organization and ask what they want. I think the idea should still manifest within the team based on all of the perspectives exactly. and skills and experience. But you offer what you are doing specifically towards particular organizations that deal with, say, homelessness or slavery or any of the United Nations initiatives. Yeah, or sustainability goals. That too. It require that specificity from the beginning so that it really helps a team focus. And when the showcase comes around, they know who to invite because they had from the very beginning an idea of who they wanted to do this for or to showcase how it can make a difference. Yeah, I, I think that would be a great idea. Maybe, for instance, just have areas. For example, area of social innovation, area of sustainability goals area of homelessness, area of domestic violence, um, gender equality, and then teams would choose the area. And within that area, they would develop the different topics. And develop a bit of research around the organizations that currently are concerned about that and do exactly. work in them so that there's an exactly. alignment from the very beginning around people and groups that care about them and do something about them. And seeing what they already do and aligning some of the initiatives that come out of the GBDS with those. Yeah. So for, for instance, what I've seen happen in, in hackathons, it's also uh, somewhat similar is that you have the area of the challenge. And then according to the areas that organize the hackathons, they already research and invite institutions that are related to the topics so they can accompany from the beginning what the teams in each of the areas are developing. The teams still decide the topic. So do you mean that the teams would decide the topic, they would come the areas, and then we, the teams ourselves, would reach out to organizations to make it real? It would be, it would be looking at the outside, looking in, in the very beginning when doing research on those organizations to see what mm -hmm. they care about and what they're doing. The end of the sprint to say, here's, here's the work that we've done in this space, and we used some of your initiatives or your information to inform what we do. I think that's a better place to be because I've seen organizations, they tend to take over the narrative where they'll say, this team is really an extension of what we want them to do. I would rather there be an independent voice within the team that carries forward what they feel is appropriate, even if it's maybe may not be exactly aligned with where the organization wants to go. I understand what you mean. So the, the decision, the topic, Basically, the, the control of the project would always be from the team side and the organization we would look up to help the, the project come to life. And there would be an alignment, but not necessarily the development of a collaboration of a partnership between them. There could be. There's the, it depends on how that alignment goes. But if that organization mm -hmm. really wants to see true innovation, it has to be without its influence. It has to be without its, yeah. its guidance in certain areas where the team would feel there's a right answer versus a wrong answer in terms of a strategic direction. That's where I think the danger is. If it comes after the fact where the body of work is done, then there can be the yeah. talk about adoption, alignment, uh, shared goals, who's intrinsically motivated to do what the organization is seeking and what the team wants to do. I think there's a better pairing there. I would rally with the idea that teams have to keep their independent spirit. Yeah, I agree. 
agree. But it's definitely one of the good things about the GVDS is that it allows for community to experiment, that the idea, and I think a lot of good ideas actually move forward. I sure hope that somebody starts a storytelling uh, webinar or some sort of session in the community of practice we're starting up. <laughs> Gee, I would hope that happens someday because we're doing it every month, but <laughs> I, can, I can wish. Maybe that'll happen. Yeah. How do people get a hold of you and where do they go to track what you create? They can find me on LinkedIn or feel happy to contact me directly by email. I'm always happy to collaborate, discuss, exchange any projects that are related to design sprints and particularly design sprints for teenagers and children. My new initiative is going to be called Spark Sprint, and it's the platform that I am creating with Alice Turibio. Very nice. Who was also a participant of uh, the Teenagers for Change. Um, she's also in the GVDS community. Hopefully she will join um, the next GVDS in April, but I'll definitely keep everyone updated on that. And uh, yeah, in the meantime, you can follow me on LinkedIn and feel free to write me directly on email. Thank you very much for coming on the podcast, Chia. And I'm sure I'm going to talk to you Thank you. It was soon. great talking to you. Thanks for listening to the Dallas Design Sprints podcast. We're going to be starting up a community of practice in December, the first week of December. Our topics are going to be up November 15th. So if you're interested, Look me up on LinkedIn. You just have to do a search for Robert and last name of S-K-R-O-B-E. Or you can do a search for me on Google or look up Dallas Design Sprints. Either way, if you want to get involved with the Global Virtual Design Sprint community of practice, be sure to reach out to me and let me know. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you soon.